snippets from The Verge. Hi, this is Emma Katrovis, host of the Artists on The Verge podcast, and you are listening to a solo episode. I named my solo episode Snippets because Artists on The Verge started as a research project into the lives of artists through interviews, and I imagine each solo episode in which I often share my readings on art, politics, economics, or anthropology, among other things, to be like a newspaper clipping piece of information or a source you might cut out and keep around for later use as you piece together the bigger picture of what it means to be an artist today. For further information about this podcast, visit the Artists on the Verge website, linked in the description. Welcome to the Artists on the Verge podcast. We have arrived at the third installment of the three-part essay, Another Art World, by Nika Dubrovsky and David Graeber which is really a scathing critique of the art world as it exists today. If this is your first time here, I'm Emma Katrovis, an opera singer turned experimental performer on a mission to document and learn about how ordinary artists live today and the issues that most affect us. And you may have arrived at the right installment of my reading this essay, since at the end of the last section, the authors promise to finally tackle the big question at the center of this essay, which is what another art world might actually look like. But first, something happened between the last installment, which was published in November 2019, and this installment, which was published in November 2020. Can you guess what it was? Yep, the pandemic and the anti-policing protests of the summer of 2020. Understandably, the authors felt they had to switch gears a bit. And this installment of the essay therefore draws a parallel between the police state and the art world. If you've read or listened to my reading of the last two installments, you know this is a deeply political text, and it really only gets more political from here. Like I've said before, this essay is meant as a kind of academic conversation starter. So start a conversation about the themes of Another Art World by David Graeber and Mika Dubrovsky in person with your friends and acquaintances, or even with me, by commenting or writing me privately using the links in the show notes. I've been glad to have some stimulating conversations about this essay in private, and I'm always happy to add more because I'm genuinely interested in what my listeners are thinking about these subjects. So let's delve in. So this is another Art World Part 3, Policing and Symbolic Order. And it starts with a quote by Nikolai Fyodorov, which goes, the earth is a museum of humanity traveling through the universe. In the first two parts of this essay, we analyzed the contemporary art world less in terms of how it works than in terms of what it does, in what is at stake in its existence. One of the most powerful and insidious roles the art world, at least as it is currently organized, plays is in the creation and maintenance of a larger symbolic order here are archiving what are called the arts, quote-unquote, creating a kind of artificial scarcity that subordinates most forms of cultural creativity. In doing so, the art world has powerful effects on many who are not even aware of its existence. And this is kind of an important claim that they make, that even if you're not an aficionado of the art world, even if you don't know what's currently going on in the contemporary art scene, it is still a powerful institution shaping somehow your world. Other ways of organizing human creativity are possible. 
In analyzing the artificial production of scarcity, the strategic adoption of only half of the romantic conception of creativity, or what the romantics themselves called genius, we also wanted to identify exactly what made it possible for the art world to play this role, so as to imagine a different one. What if we spent half the creativity we spent on producing new works of art on reimagining the institutional structures of the art world itself? We set out to examine the matter historically and cross-culturally, and also take inspiration from our own daydreams and nightmares to produce a Borges-like catalog. I love Borges. Borges was a, a magical realist, and for example, he, well, I don't know if that's exactly what they're referring to, but he has this lovely short story about uh, this infinite library, for example. Borges-like catalog of possible art worlds based on different principles of value. So then there's a list of these quirky alternate realities which organize the art world in a different way. But to be clear, these aren't really actionable solutions. These are just kind of like thought experiments, as they're called. What if there were an art world with the explicit aim of producing gossip? What if there were an art world in which art is an extremely sophisticated form of personal insult directed at those the artist hates, such as other artists? What if there were an art world in which humans were not allowed to participate but only observe the interactions of animals and machines? What if there were an art world in which works are meant to express feelings of shame or remorse, art as apology? What if the art world were organized by the government to design previously unimaginable forms of sin, or just beautiful pornography, then sell carnal indulgences provided by the government to absolve consumers? I I just, I don't know what to make of this list. Like, it's, 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 it is Borges-like. It's very, like, magical realism. You could imagine a short story being written around a, a, an absurdist world organized in this way. What I guess one can extrapolate from this is that they're saying the values and aesthetics on which the art world is founded or on which it operates are so subjective that you could replace them with a totally different values like gossip, producing gossip, or apologies, or inventing new ways of sin so that then it can be turned into a profit by selling indulgences. Now, of course, uh, the, the, the pro-art world person would counter this by saying, but the art world operates on values that are fundamentally artistic. You can't say that gossip is the same as having artistic values. And I guess that's the thing. Like, we can't even define tangibly what makes something a work of art and what makes it valuable. And they, they claim that assigning value to art is actually utterly, utterly subjective. And that's what this list kind of implies. <laughs> this was a great deal of fun, this being inventing these alternate realities. This was a great deal of fun and could easily have grown to hundreds, even thousands of possible other art worlds. But after the global pandemic and the veritable mass uprising that followed, it seemed a trifle flippant. We decided to reconsider our approach. Inter ana silent muse. I don't know that's in Latin. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. The muses all fall silent when canons talk. But perhaps this is true of only a certain kind of muse. We came to realize that the ideas we were developing, however imaginative, were ultimately reformist. Perhaps, as Black Lives Matter has argued so cogently of the police and prison industrial complex, the art world can't be reformed. What would it mean to take an abolitionist position? So they're basically saying, okay, the whole world is talking about police violence. We also have to talk about police violence, so we're going to tie police violence into our argument about art. 
on Monuments and the Rules of Engagement is the name of the next chapter. Before the global pandemic, much of the world was already in a state of revolt. 2019 had already seen, mostly nonviolent, insurrections everywhere from Haiti to Hong Kong to Lebanon to Réunion, although these were largely isolated with very little communication between them or even much mutual awareness of the other's existence. Of course, Graeber, because, you know, he was at the conception, I guess, of the Occupy Wall Street movements, he is a bit of an anarchist, leftist anarchist, so he's very aware whenever in, there is any kind of uprising of the people anywhere. So they're saying that, you know, actually, 2020 was just a culmination of something that was just, it was kind of brewing for a long time before. In the wake of the pandemic and the killing of George Floyd, the global uprising of spring and summer 2020 found a common inspiration in Black Lives Matter in the United States and a common language as a generalized rebellion against the police state in many local manifestations. By summer 2020, at least two shared themes in the global movement had emerged. The first is a process of mutual communication, starting from a shared desire to dismantle existing structures of state violence in solidarity with the population that bore the brunt of it. Romani in Serbia, migrants in Italy, for instance. But also to simultaneously begin to imagine the kind of institutions that would have to be created in their stead. The second was the destruction of monuments. Okay, so they're saying that there's two themes. One of them was that they found a common language of, I guess, critiquing the system by showing solidarity with a particular oppressed group of people. And the second one was the destruction of monuments. The second is the destruction of monuments. There have been some incidents of looting, but significantly, they are not celebrated by protesters and are often assumed to have been intentionally staged by the police. Okay, so I, so I find this statement a bit manipulative and misleading and unnecessarily so. You know, the issue here is that we're talking about a decentralized, semi-spontaneous movement. You're not talking about an institution. Really, to, to sort of compare the wrongs of the police with the wrongs of protest movements is an apples and oranges comparison, because you're talking about the police being an organized institution, whereas a movement of protests or an uprising, as they say, is something spontaneous and decentralized. And you can't really speak for it as if it had one mind. You know what I mean? So you can't cherry pick and say, well, actually, the, the real protesters, the ones we're going to listen to, were against looting. In fact, there were plenty, I mean, there were think pieces and even, I think, a book written about, you know, in defense of looting, looting as kind of a cap anti-capitalist gesture. It's unfortunate because it makes Nika Dubrovsky and David Graeber look kind of biased. The attacks on monuments, even if destructive, are completely unrelated to looting. Okay, I don't see who would uh, contradict that. Of course, yeah, destroying a statue is not looting. Monuments, like museums, or more precisely, along with museums, are mechanisms for the production and dissemination of public meaning. It would seem that they are the machinery being at least temporarily suspended and systematically thrown into question with public gatherings in so many towns and cities, not only in the U.S. They're saying the monuments are actually cultural machinery, which is, is stopped and suspended somehow in order for reflection uh, to be had or something. One might put it this way. Those who broke out of lockdown directly into mass mobilization moved directly to take over the means of production of the symbolic order. Means of production, Marxist term. Expressed above all in the reorganization of violent and cruel public space, 
through the destruction and alteration of monuments. Some people bemoan the destruction of monuments as an attack on history, though almost no one, interestingly, has seen it as an attack on art. Interesting. I mean, I don't think that statues of people like historical guys is really considered art. I think they're considered like a thing of their own. Some distinguish between good and bad monuments. We, however, and this is italicized, we, however, take the side of Nikolas Mirzov, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, M-I-R-Z-O-E-F-F, who wrote a few years ago that all monuments must fall. It's the classic, this classic revolutionary idea that everything must be destroyed, kind of like goddess Kali destroys everything in order for new things to grow. It's a very, it's, it's just a very, very common theme of leftist revolt. What is a monument anyway? After actions like N30 in Seattle against the WTO in 1990, the principal images that seemed to remain in public memory were, one, anarchists dressed in black smashing Starbucks windows, and two, colorful giant papier-mâché puppets. But why, between the two, did the police seem to hate the puppets more? The police incessantly tried in subsequent actions to arrest the puppets, destroy the puppets, and organize preemptive strikes against the places where the puppets were being made. It got to the point where puppets had to be made in hiding, and the Black Bloc often had to organize its deployment largely to protect the puppets and their accompanying, quote, carnival block of musicians, clowns, belly dancers, stilt walkers, and so forth. The only citation about the puppets actually points to an article by David Graeber, <laughs> because the puppets were so fascinating to me. I found a audio documentary that talked specifically about the puppets during these protests in the 90s, and there, they said that the police were scared of the puppets and that they retreated from the puppets. Now, those two things are not as contradictory as it might seem, because actually, whether they attacked the puppets or retreated from the puppets, they were reacting in fear. So it's a beautiful idea that this is the case. Part of me just wants some kind of like more of a citation on this, also because I just find it fascinating that the police would actually attack these grotesque puppets more than human beings. I mean, that's weird, right? Why did the police object so violently to the carnival block? The carnival block being the puppets, but then also all these musicians and clowns and belly dancers and, and stilt walkers. Part of the reason, part of the reason that the police objected so violently to the carnival block was that using art was seen as cheating. And did they say it was cheating? If that is true, I would love to know more about that. And I'd love to, you know, to, to, to understand that. But I, I'm, not, I'm not fully convinced by their account. The Black Blocs were effectively combatants in a war. Mass actions involved classic military-style maneuvers aimed at ambushing, outflanking, surrounding, or breaking through the lines of adversaries. As in any war, there were limits on what weapons and tactics could be deployed. And though these limits varied from country to country, in general, the police weren't allowed to use deadly force, and the other side couldn't use anything likely to cause serious physical harm. So they're saying this was a war, but it was a war where physical uh, harm and deadly force were not allowed. It is important to emphasize that these rules always exist, even in what seems like total war, such as the Russian front in World War II, where neither side used poison gas or tried to assassinate the other's leader. I mean, this is interesting, right? That even, even during these incredibly brutal, terrible wars, there are some rules. But how are those rules negotiated? This takes place at the level of symbolic warfare, and the police, at least, feel strongly that the creation of powerful imagery to sway the public and regulate who can use what sort of force and what circumstances should be carried out through the media. Certainly, 
Police representatives did this assiduously, almost invariably telling outrageous lies about protester violence to justify more extreme repressive measures. Yeah, it's so difficult to know what's true <laughs> when you're watching uh, the news. By the way, I, I do live in France. I'm studying here. And there were big, big protests uh, the last couple of months uh, because there was a bill pushed through about raising the age of retirement. And there were massive protests. And one time, as I was walking home one evening, like a procession of protesters was just coming in the other direction towards me, chanting. And I, I don't feel like it's really my place to protest because I'm not French, but I was, I was drawn to it and I, I followed them. And what happened was that these, these protesters clashed with the police who had been actually, I saw they drew, the, the police actually drove by me in this big like van. And then they finally clashed on the main road and the police tear gassed the hell out of the whole street. And people who were not even involved in the protest, because this was like 9 p.m., there were, you know, people having wine, you know, everywhere. And I understood, even though I wasn't even in direct, like, line of the pepper, of the of the tear gas, like, I understood what a powerful tool this was. Needless to say, that whole protest, you know, disappeared. I don't think that they, that they reconvened after that. And I had to go, like, there were people coughing on the other side of the block. So the police here in France, they started to get, they, they were no joke. Um, and this is not a lethal weapon, but it's it's definitely a, a, a physical kind of assault in, in the most, like, basic way that you can say it. Because you, you can't open your eyes. And this was being done, this was just sort of being sprayed on the street where people were just walking by, right? Civilians were just like minding their own business. Not all of them were even the protesters. You know, in terms of what, what Nika Dubrovsky go on to talk about in terms of the violence of the police and how that's sort of assumed to kind of be okay in a way that, that civilian violence and protester violence is not, there is some of that, you know, even though in France they, they don't use lethal violence. So what, they're, what they were talking about was how the police tried to exaggerate protester violence in order to justify repressive measures. From the perspective of the police, however, the Black Bloc appeared to organize a military-style confrontation and then, quote, diffusing or, or de-escalating the situation by sending in puppets and clowns was obviously cheating. The anarchists were demanding the right to change the rules of engagement in the field of battle. Puppets became the symbol of this demand. This idea that the carnival was used, that music was used, that these giant puppets were used in these protests, to me, the way I read it is that it's it's a kind of self-infantilization in the sense that, you know, the people, the protesters are always actually in a child's position when you think about it. And the state and the police are in the position of like a punishing parent. And so to me, the use of art in the broadest sense as a, as, as a part of protests that are against the state or against some kind of overarching system is just an expression of that. It's an expression of, we want to support the, the childlike freedom within us against the, the grown-up severity of the state. But I mean, I guess that's no less kind of subjective than what they're arguing. But why specifically puppets? Here, a further level of analysis is required. Black Bloc communiques spoke of breaking the spell, quote-unquote. We are surrounded, they say, by glittering palaces of consumerism, which seem like permanent monuments to a corrupt and fallen human nature. Yet with a simple monkey wrench, the whole facade can dissolve away into shards of glass. At the same time, giant puppets, 
which could represent anything from gods and dragons to caricatures of politicians and corporate bureaucrats, were simultaneously divine and ridiculous. There were objects that took days, even weeks, to assemble and were put together collectively by large numbers of people. They were gigantic but fragile, and after a day's use almost invariably crumbled away. In other words, they mocked the very idea of a monument. They represented the permanent power to bring the monument into being as something very large that dominates public space, and by doing so seems to make real an abstraction. Such a constant kaleidoscope of possible monuments evoked the sacred in a form so powerful that it effectively had to be made silly. Otherwise, its power would be too terrifying. Okay, what this actually does remind me of is um, in Graeber's last book, which he co-wrote with David Wengrow, The Dawn of Everything, they talk about this idea of schismogenesis, that adjacent human societies, or even within one society, there's this tendency for, for groups of people to define themselves against each other. In this case, the schismogenesis is happening with the, the state representing itself with these permanent monuments, these majestic monuments of, of these, you know, majestically, you know, generals looking off majestically into the distance, whereas the protesters just utterly turn that on its head and they make these ridiculous monuments, these funny almost monuments, which move, they're not static, they move, and they're impermanent. So to me, this is more just like this notion of schismogenesis where human beings define themselves against each other. In their self-satire, the giant puppets were also the most honest of monuments, because any monument that proclaims the eternity of what it represents, a sculpture, a mausoleum, a stolen Egyptian obelisk, is by definition a fraud. The things they represent are not really eternal. If they were, there would be no need to raise a monument. No one ever built a monument to the principle of gravity, or winter, or the sea. Indeed, one could even argue that there is a slight danger involved to creating a monument to something like justice or the nation, because by doing so, one is subtly suggesting it may not be eternal. So this idea that the whole point of a monument is to eternalize that which is actually not eternal. Recent images of masked, heavily armed police surrounding the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. are not perhaps as ironic as they might seem. Police are essentially the guardians of the very principle of monumentality, the ability to turn control over violence into truth. Even the language police use to describe what they do, force, law, power, suggests that the ability to threaten others with sticks and guns, lock them in cages, or to place one's knee on their neck until they stop breathing, should be considered analogous to the principles that govern the universe. On politics, policy, politeness, and police. During the uprisings, art institutions largely played a, sometimes surprisingly, supportive role, providing food and shelter for those fleeing or recovering from encounters with police, for example. So it might seem ungracious to take an abolitionist position in relation to the art world. We should make clear that we do not intend this as a moral critique of individuals or individual complicity. In the same way that shifting focus from racism, which can easily be turned into a moral language of endless self-examination at the expense of action, I think I know who that's criticizing, to opposing, quote, white supremacy, as a set of institutional structures producing a concrete outcome that needs to be reversed through action. 
we want to shift our own question, is another art world possible, to focus on the very existence of the art world as an institutional power, here archiving symbolic relations that extend far beyond its own reach. I mean, they have been focusing on the art world as an institutional power, hierarchizing symbolic relations that extend far beyond its own reach for this whole time. And I would actually personally be more interested in like, what, what would they build in its place? But okay. When protesters say the police are beyond reform, they must be defunded and dismantled. They are obviously not rejecting the idea of public safety. On the contrary, they are insisting that police institutions, as they currently exist, are detrimental to public safety and for reasons running too deep for any reform to alleviate. That we have to understand what cops actually do, figure out which elements, if any, are actually desirable, and develop other ways and other institutions to do it. But unfortunately, I feel like there, it's constantly we're just stuck in this debate of abolishment, even in this essay when it comes to the art world. And there's very little constructive thoughts about what could replace it. And that's just, to me, that's like the overarching problem with some of these, these discussions. It's easy to, to, to criticize systems. It's very easy. But it, what's hard is to, to, to provide some kind of answer or to say, okay, these are some actionable small steps that we can take to better the situation. That's so much harder. It's the same with the art world. As an institution that restricts the distribution of sacred or symbolic meaning, the making real of abstractions. So just like we must abolish the police, we must abolish the art world. That's basically what they're saying. But what do police actually do? In order to understand this, we need to understand the history of how police came into existence, as well as how they came to take the form, and crucially, the symbolic role they have today. So we're going to go back into history again, because this is, for the most part, kind of a historical slash cultural analysis. This history is not what we are taught to expect. The idea of something called, quote, the state only really came into currency in the 17th century, and modern European states were always police states in some sense, in that the creation of what were called police functions was a key part of extending sovereign authority to the entire population. But there is also a reason for politics, policy, and police, and for that matter, politeness, all sharing the same root. Police at their inception had almost nothing to do with public safety, let alone fighting crime, which was still handled by constables and the local watch. Police were there to enforce regulations, licensing, guaranteeing the food supply to cities to prevent riots, monitoring ruthless populations, and crucially to acting as spies. Antoine de Sardine, Louis the 15th chief of police, boasted that if there were three men talking on the street, one of them almost certainly worked for him. Modern policing was born in the early 19th century in England in the wake of the Industrial Revolution. The new, uniformed police, while now advertising themselves as crime fighters, mainly had the dual function of protecting the rich and, quote, prevention, which largely meant forcing able-bodied vagrants into respectable labor. So they're basically just saying, again, the police are in fact there to reinforce order within the state. They're not really there to protect the population, they are there to protect the state and that the, the name is proof enough. Politicians back then were often refreshingly honest about their motives. Many were quite explicit that they had no interest in eliminating poverty. Patrick Cahoon, the first great theorist of British policing, wrote that poverty was necessary to drive people to industry, and industry was necessary to produce wealth, just not for the poor. 
They were concerned with the section of the poor who were not producing wealth or threatening to take the wealth away, whether by pickpocketing or insurrection. In this sense, police were always political. In the U.S., for instance, police in the southern states were largely commissioned to enforce the segregation of former slaves, while in northern cities, one important motive for creating professional police forces was fear that the army would prove unreliable if called out against strikes during industrial disputes. In this sense, police were, from the very beginning, concerned with social welfare, but of an intentionally limited kind. What we have come to know as the welfare state, in contrast, is quite different in its origins. It is not derived from the apparatus of states at all. From Sweden to Brazil, everything from social insurance to kindergartens to public libraries were originally the product of social movements. Labor unions, neighborhood groups, bunds, political parties, and so forth. I mean, that is interesting to think about, that basically every kind of public resource that we kind of take for granted. I mean, in the U.S., they don't, they're not as maybe public, but there are public libraries and there are public schools. And even if you don't like the way they work, it's actually pretty amazing that they exist. How much we actually do have that's public. And all of this, they say, is thanks to the people banding together against the state to create these things, is their argument. The state merely co-opted them and insisted they be run by top-down bureaucracies. So this is where David Graeber and Nika Dubrovsky's anarchist nature comes in, where they're just really, they're saying, it's great, you know, to have public stuff, but what makes the public stuff bad is the top-down bureaucracies. Because I think that the problem is size, but you can't have it both ways. You can't have not pooled public knowledge, these huge institutions like, you know, a system of public libraries or public schools and this kind of thing, and not have some bureaucracy. But there's this fierce belief that humans will figure it out if you give them the, the resources. And I, I hope it's true but I've never seen it done. And I guess most people that live in our society today have not actually seen that done. Like what would large institutions, which have all the advantages of the bigness of them um, and aren't just like, you know, small businesses, for example, or something like that, but truly like a public library in a big city, can they be run without a top-down bureaucracy? I mean, that would interest me. I would love to see what that would look like. For a while, mainly when capitalist uh, states were still faced with the threat of the socialist bloc, this compromise did produce widespread prosperity. But what the state seizes, the state can also lock away. As a result, since the 1970s and 80s, as revolutionary threats faded, the power of unions was broken, community groups began to be broken up, and the welfare state began to be dismantled. The police began increasingly to take over the provision of social services once again. They're talking about the 1970s and 80s, but is this like all over the West, all over the world? I feel like that needs to be specified here. Just like in the 1820s, the transformation was mediated by a symbolic offensive claiming the real role of police was, quote, fighting crime. Ah, yes, because this was the big time of the, of the anti-drug, anti-crime pushes. It's hard to remember that prior to the 1970s. I think that they are, however, talking about the U.S. here, and they maybe. Maybe they specified that earlier, I'm not sure. It's hard to remember that prior to the 1970s, there were almost no movies in America or perhaps anywhere in the world where policemen were the heroes. And then suddenly heroic maverick cops were on screens everywhere, just as actual cops, security professionals, surveillance systems, and the like began appearing in places where they would once have been unheard of. Schools, hospitals, beaches, playgrounds. All the while, the actual function of police remained much as it has been in the 1600s. 
police sociologists have long noted that real cops spend perhaps 6 to 11% of their time on matters that have anything to do with crime, much less violent crime. The overwhelming majority of their time and energy is spent enforcing the endless municipal regulations on who can drink, walk, sell, smoke, eat, drive what, where, and under what conditions. Police are still bureaucrats with weapons, bringing the possibility of violence, even death, into situations where it would never otherwise exist. For instance, the sale of unlicensed cigarettes. That's, of course, a reference to George Floyd. Yeah, okay, so they're just basically saying, if we think about it, police actually don't, in fact, deal with the thing that they're supposedly dealing with, which is crime most of the time. Like, real violent crime. The main difference is that as capitalism has financialized itself during the same period, police have added an additional administrative function, revenue collection, IS, <laughs> collecting traffic tickets. Many city governments are entirely dependent on money coming in from police enforcement. That's why you have speed traps. I always thought that was so absurd that that even existed, that there were police actually like hiding in places where it was almost inevitable that you'd be too fast. It's just like... Many city governments are entirely dependent on money coming in from police enforcement of fines in order to balance their books and pay their creditors. Just as police in the industrial age were deployed to guarantee the continued existence of useful poverty, useful in parentheses poverty, in a financial age, they ensure that not just minority or marginal populations, but increasingly anyone who is not a creditor is treated as a criminal. Clearly, none of this has much, if anything, to do with public safety. In fact, at this point, the yearly death rate in America for mass shootings, so they are speaking specifically about America, the yearly death rate in America for mass shootings alone is parallel to what one would expect in a country undergoing a minor civil war. But what do, what do mass shootings have to do with... Oh, okay, so they're saying that, you know, considering that policing, that you have policing in the U.S., and that policing is supposed to be a public, about public safety... It's interesting to note that America has so many deaths from mass shootings, which police cannot prevent and don't prevent, um, as to almost constitute a minor civil war. As abolitionists point out, Americans would be far safer if they eliminated police entirely, returned to largely self-organized social services, stopped employing trained killers to inform them of a broken taillight, and created a completely different organization to deal with violent crime. Here, I just want to apologize to those of you who are interested in art and what you're getting here is a is an essay about policing. There is more about the art world in this essay. Don't worry, we'll we'll come back to the to the main subject. Um, this was very much extemporaneous to that moment after the summer of 2020, so it's understandable. Personally, I'm sometimes uncomfortable with being too flippant about this idea of abolishing the police just cold turkey without doing anything else, maybe because in my family, my father grew up with a criminal. His his father was a criminal and he bounced checks. He also seemed to have just physical violent tendencies. He wasn't just a thief. What's interesting and what I think kind of would, uh, you know, kind of support David Graeber and Nika Dubrovsky's idea of the police as, as this immoral body that only supports the authority of the state rather than protecting people is that my grandfather went to prison not for beating his children, not for beating his wife, not for <laughs> cutting the tails off a bunch of puppies and leaving them to die, which when you think about it is just like, like stuff like that, which actually is the, is the work of like a sick person, right? Like he, 
I mean, I won't even say some things, you know, that, that he did. But what he went for prison for was not domestic violence, was not murder of animals, but in fact, uh, bouncing checks. People who are truly violent to their close ones are not being locked up at the same rate as people who, I don't know, sell drugs or who steal or, or this kind of stuff, which is to say, do do kind of what I would think of as nonviolent crime. Now, it's true that it, I guess a lot of people in law enforcement would argue, yeah, but the people who commit like theft are more likely to also be committing, you know, violent crime and being being violent in their daily lives. And that certainly was the case with my grandfather. So even if he went to, to prison for the wrong thing, well, at least he went to prison. Although he was even more abusive when he came back, I think, than when he left because he was probably himself assaulted in prison, as most men are often. So, yeah, I don't know what to make. I mean, that, that's just that's just to share with you that it, it's, it's very complicated. And I guess my feeling is like, I wish that there were someone to protect my grandmother and, and her children when they were children from people that are truly, you know, hurting them. And to say abolish the police so so flippantly when there are people experiencing really horrible domestic violence, for example, and children experiencing this is, to me, irresponsible. But of course, I, I totally understand that what they're saying is actually, yes, that, it, that would be the correct way to use some kind of anti-crime force, but that's not actually how the police is being used. It's it's kind of a Swiss army knife for, for kind of maintaining state order rather than actually protecting citizens is what they're saying. Okay, so the next section is actually going to get back to the art world, hopefully. What does this have to do with the art world? That's the name of the next section. Our argument is that just as police ultimately operate to maintain poverty and white supremacy, what we call, quote, the art world ultimately exists to maintain a structure of hierarchy. The, the editor in me wants to say ultimately exists to maintain hierarchy or social hierarchy. Anyway, um, okay, bold claim, but it's also not surprising given everything else they've said. What happens inside the bubble of the art world makes little difference. The issue is the existence of the bubble itself. They, they've been saying this in various ways throughout these three essays is that basically, like, there's a lot of focus on what's in the art world, who's being represented within the art world, what uh, is considered art, and whether it can be taken seriously within the art world. But that doesn't change the container, and they're saying the container is the problem, not the, the, the contents of the container. So we need to get rid of the container, the art world itself. Or to put it slightly differently, the arts are organized the way they are because, quote, art sits on top of them. A poor child growing up in a shantytown in Brazil or Pakistan has likely never heard of any of the names featured at the latest Documenta, a big arts festival. But whatever she might dream of becoming, a rapper, a movie star, a fashion designer, a comedian, basically anything other than a tycoon, athlete, or politician, it is already ranked on a scale in which artist is the pinnacle. The fact that most people have little or no idea who contemporary artists are or what they do contributes to the mystery. I, I don't know if I agree with this uh, universal, that, that there is some kind of universal idea of high art at the top of some kind of hierarchy of creative expression everywhere in the same way. 
I told this story in, in my reading of the first section about the children in the Czech Republic in this small town. It's a fairly provincial small town. How they couldn't really say what art is. And one of the kids called a bus driver an art. Well, they didn't say the bus driver is an artist, but they're saying uh, he was being artful by avoiding a, a tree or something because it was winter and the, the roads were, were icy or something. Uh, these children did, were not really clear on like art as some kind of pinnacle of, of, of human achievement, honestly. I'm not trying to like play gotcha, but I'm just saying my, my experience is different. This may help to explain otherwise puzzling contradictions. In trying to explain why it would be a bad thing if our troublesome human species became extinct, art and culture is often evoked as one of the few self-evident justifications for our existence. On the other hand, most people find artists rather useless. <laughs> a recent Sunday Times poll, this was a COVID, one of those COVID polls about essential jobs. A recent Sunday Times poll challenged a thousand people to name the most essential and least essential professions. The five most important turned out to be doctors, nurses, cleaners, garbage collectors, vendors, and delivery men. But the real headline news was that the least essential turned out to be artists. Telemarketers came in second. <laughs> to add insult to injury, artists are under telemarketers. Um, yeah, this was a really powerful poll. And actually, like, I didn't, I don't remember there being much pushback among artists. Like, everyone was just kind of shrugging, being like, yeah, mm, they're right. Um, and in this next paragraph, they, they kind of explain why this is. And, and I think it's kind of the big question at the heart of all this and the kind of the crux of the matter. So... There's no reason to believe this reflects hostility towards artists, the result of the poll, that is, or a feeling that they would be better off collecting trash. Rather, it seems to reflect a feeling that, quote, artist isn't really a job at all, or perhaps that it shouldn't be. It should be a reward. It's as if artists are seen as people who insist that they, and they alone, already exist under communism. <laughs> Put this way, it's not unreasonable to then ask, why should nurses and cleaners have to pay for artists? It's almost as if the contingencies of race, class, and national origin sort us all out into different historical epochs, wherein some of us toil away under capitalism, some are reduced to feudal retainers, others are even living under de facto slavery, while a chosen few are allowed to inhabit a communist future, this communist utopia which David Graper and particularly, I think, Nika Dubrovsky seem to somehow believe in to inhabit a communist future that might otherwise, perhaps, never come into being? Should we be surprised that nurses and cleaners look slightly annoyed as the artists wave from their communist star cruiser floating past? I'm not sure what this communist star cruiser is. I, and are, are nurses and cleaners annoyed? And are they referring to like a photo that existed? And in, in, uh, maybe this was like some photo, viral photo or something. Um, in any case... What I'll say here is it's something I think about as well. This idea of what is a life worth living and are artists just trying to have a life that is somehow better than everyone else's and more meaningful. That said, and, and this idea that, that like, it's almost like we're insisting that different people have to live in different epochs is, is interesting, although most artists are in fact toiling under capitalism like everyone else. I mean, that's part of the, what I'm docu trying to document on my podcast is like, what does an artist, like the average actual artist's life look like? That is someone who is dedicating their life to, to creative expression, but isn't one of the 1% who, you know, make a, have a huge success. Well, they're toiling. They're, they're trying to make ends meet whilst trying to continue to even practice 
their art. And even just continuing to practice one's art is considered success. So I, I wouldn't, you know, I think that that is an image of artists that is not accurate, this idea that they're actually living under some communist uh, utopia. But but I, I don't think that's what they're saying. I think that they're just saying that in our kind of collective image of what different types of vocations uh, offer, that is the image, this idea that artists live under a communist uh, utopia where there is no, they just simply get to express themselves and it's all about uh, freedom and 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 leisure and and inspiration which the idea that that's what actual communism ever was or ever could be is interesting but and then and then everyone else like actually has an actual job actually working uh for the system rather than just being supported by the system in order to have the free time in order to create things there's definitely some of that happening at the same time this idea that everyone wants to even be an artist is just it that's not my experience Creativity exists in all fields. If anything, I think that there's like a brain drain of creativity from lots of different fields where the, the experts in those fields are just meant, made to be cogs in a, in a machine rather than individual uh, creative beings, right? Whereas the gamble you take when you want to be an artist is this is that you want to be someone who has utter you know, freedom of expression and is able to be uh, creative in what they do, which often is not what you actually achieve. But uh, the game is totally different. But, you know, if we were to treat, for example, engineers the same way that we treat artists, the idea would be that someone would get an engineering degree and then they would go out into the world and people would, would pay them to invent from the ground up, you know, engineer interesting things that they want to engineer and then like sell them and get paid to make them, which sounds, I don't know, maybe there's some YouTubers, I think, who are doing this and maybe some entrepreneurs who, who get something patented. But uh, most people who study engineering don't end up doing that. But there is, you know, these companies who are willing to employ them. Whereas with artists, it's 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 harder to tell how you can fit into the, the machinery of, of capitalism, for example. So that to me, I guess, is, is the difference. And that's where I quibble with this a little bit. I also think there's some truth in this idea of artists kind of the, the assumption being that they get to kind of live off the comforts of civilized society whilst creating their things and not having to contribute anything tangible, I guess. Obviously, most artists don't see it that way. Ah, okay, they are in dialogue with me now. <laughs> they are preempting me. Obviously, most artists don't see it that way. Some feel they are still blazing the trail to a utopian future. I do not feel that way. In good avant-garde fashion. But by now, it's just as obvious a pretext as someone telling himself his cushy job in brand management isn't really hurting anyone, since he doesn't actually do much more than spend his time updating his Facebook profile and playing computer games. Burn. <laughs> they really don't like these corporate types. Maybe this is true of, his, of the brand manager's job. But then we also have to admit that the existence of brand management is clearly a disaster. <laughs> The existence of brand management is a disaster. The same goes for the art world, since to enter this communist tomorrow, you need resources. And the art world, I mean, they're assuming that, that all artists are like communists, I guess. Or, or do they want to enter a communist tomorrow? Like, I don't know. Um, uh, you need resources to enter the communist tomorrow, indeed. And the art world's attempts to foreground more women, people of color, and so forth does little to undercut this. To be recognized as an artist, you need to support a certain structure of recognition. Exactly. Yeah, if you want to be recognized as an artist, you have to actually support 
the structures that bestow recognition. To take an obvious example, you need to show in museums those temples of our civilization where reigning symbolic codes are formed, assigned, and archived. After all, the same is true of cops. All cops are bastards is a structural statement. Okay? There have always been individual cops who have been well-meaning, even idealistic. Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, spent seven years working for the LAPD. I don't know how being the creator of Star Trek makes you a well-meaning idealist. The point is that their personal character or even personal politics are mostly irrelevant. They are operating within an institutional structure that does inestimable harm. And whether any particular benevolent act does more harm by validating that structure or good by mitigating it is a secondary consideration. I mean, that's a strong statement, right? Basically, it's this, this sort of statement like, it doesn't matter what you do if you're not actively opposing the system. Uh, you're simply participating in it, which is, again, very, very common, far revolutionary leftist talking point. The next section is called Museums are to the art world as prisons are to the police state. What a statement. If we were to tell the history of the art world in the same way we just told the very abbreviated history of police, we would have to begin with the role of the museum. Of course, the French Revolution began with the storming of the Bastille, a prison, but it culminated in the seizure of the Louvre Palace, which became the first national museum, effectively initiating a new secular conception of the sacred to break the remaining power of the church. Of course, museums do not produce art. Neither do they distribute art. They sacralize it. It's important to underline the connection between property and the sacred. To sacralize is to exclude. It's to set something apart from the world, whether because it is a sacred to an individual, private property, or sacred to something more abstract, art, God, humanity, the nation. Any revolutionary regime changes existing forms of property, and the organization or reorganization of museums plays a crucial role in this process, since the forms of property that exist within museums represent the summit of the pyramid. They are the ultimate wealth that police protect, and that the industrious poor can only see on weekends. So they're basically saying that sacralizing is the same as, as owning, or the idea of the sacred is the same as the idea of property. I, I do want to foreshadow, I, I want to read an essay by an art anthropologist who uses a phrase, making special, as one of the ways that artists use, that you make something special, that this is something human beings across all cultures do. They take everyday objects and they make them special, which this anthropologist does not problematize this idea of property and, and the sacred. But then they're also saying that when there's a revolution, uh, not only is there a reorganization of property, I guess, of who owns what, you know, like in under communism, property is redistributed, but there's also a very crucial reorganization of museums. And they say that the ultimate wealth that the police protect are museums. It's quite a statement. Virtually all museums today operate in a way that produces and maintains hierarchy. By archiving, cataloging, and reorganizing the museum space, they draw a line between, quote, museum quality and, quote, non-museum quality objects. But there is no ultimate contradiction between commoditized art and art considered inalienable and not to be sold, because there are simply two variations of the sacred as a radical exclusion. 
The fact that these objects are surrounded by armed security and high-tech surveillance simply serves to underline, to any visitor, how much their own creative acts – songs, jokes, hobbies, diary entries, care for loved ones, and precious mementos – are of no particular significance, and therefore, that visitor will need to return to their non-museum life and continue to carry on their non-inessential job producing and maintaining the structure of relationships that makes museums possible. Much like the cathedrals they were meant to replace, museums are there to teach one one's place. Do you feel when you enter a museum, and maybe you do, that this is a place that is belittling you as a human being and telling you that you are not as special as these objects? Now, I understand like the critique of the economic structure around that and how the wealth is concentrated, but to say just the very notion of displaying objects and, and preserving them is supposed to be alienating. I just, it just seems like they're sort of attributing feelings uh, where not everyone maybe has them. In the same way, the art world, as the apparatus for the production of objects, performances, or ideas that might someday merit being sacralized, they are making a distinction between galleries and museums, right? Because museums sacralize what the art world produces. In the same way, the art world, as the apparatus for the production of objects, performances, or ideas that might someday merit being sacralized, is based on the artificial creation of scarcity. In the way that police guarantee material poverty, the existence of the art world, in its current form, could be said to guarantee spiritual poverty. I, I do have this feeling of a human desert, but I, I always attribute it often to the internet, that the internet is creating a kind of spiritual poverty by concentrating our attention away from local communities and the present. What then would an abolitionist project directed at the art world actually look like? The next section is called Ways Out? The Russian parallel to the storming of the Bastille was of course the storming of the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg, and the Winter Palace was itself duly converted into a national museum, the Hermitage. The Hermitage Museum, I think they're now going back to talking about the Proletkult that we learned about in the first chapter, in the first uh, section of this three-part essay. The Hermitage Museum survived the collapse of the Soviet Union and continues to this day to operate almost exactly as it had under Stalin and Brezhnev. This in itself might be worth a moment's reflection, since it suggests that property relations, and therefore conceptions of the sacred, have changed a lot less than we imagined between Soviet state capitalism, yet since wild liberalism, and the current right-wing nationalist regime. Those running the hermitage are, in fact, rather proud of this. They see it as proof that they represent a kind of beacon of eternity. It's really interesting, this idea that the structure of the museum survived all these wildly different regimes. There is a great deal of discussion today about the possibility of removing public monuments and relegating them to museums, but at the same time, and in a rather contradictory fashion, of turning museums themselves into places of care, love, and social transformation. I don't know who's talking about that except uh, Nika Dubrovsky and David Graeber in their essay, uh, A Museum of Care. And of course, Nika Dubrovsky then went on to found something called the Museum of Care. There is a general sense that the art world needs to get on board with the movement against the police state. Perhaps even that art could be one means of restoring the social fabric torn apart by the financialization and security culture that has spread from the United States to almost everywhere. 
Some seek to explore the connections between art, money, and securitization itself. Many argue that we should stop the movement of hundreds of thousands of art tourists around the globe. Who are they? I mean, I, I feel like at this point when they're saying many argue that we should stop, I, you know, we're all in our little bubbles. And I, for example, I didn't, I didn't notice people saying uh, we should stop the movement of hundreds of thousands of art tourists around the globe. I did notice a lot of talk of what they would criticize as simply changing the contents as opposed to the, the container. So a lot of talk of diversity within uh, arts institutions, but very little talk of the actual institution and how it functions. But, you know, Nika Dubrovsky and David Graeber move in different circles than I. Many argue that we should stop the movement of hundreds of thousands of art tourists around the globe, stop building pointless new offices, stop hosting so many exclusive presentations and dinners that serve no purpose other than self-celebration, and imagine how art could be one of the many forms of care that contributes to the reproduction of human life, education, medicine, safety, different forms of knowledge, etc., how else could it be possible for everyone to cultivate local artistic communities as ends in themselves? I mean, that's kind of the position I'm on right now is this idea of cultivating uh, local artistic communities, but it's difficult. And in fact, it's it's interesting that they say art could be one, one of the many forms of care because that's what I was quibbling with here. Because when they say everyone's an artist, it denies what I find very important, which is this idea that that art is in fact a service of some sort, and that if we understand it as a service, we can actually do it better because we understand what it is, is for. And I see them now kind of acknowledging that and, and this idea that it's the form of care. These are sensible proposals, the proposals being uh, stopping the movement of art tourists, uh, stopping building pointless new offices or hosting exclusive presentations and dinners, etc. So stopping all the, 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 the promotional shenanigans around the art world. These are sensible proposals, but they lack the coherence and urgency of the demands being made to defund or abolish the police. Yeah, because, I'm sorry, but the police, you could say, are there's actual lives on the line. Whereas uh, this is, you know, it's it's still the cultural sphere. Like, it's it's still something else than actual lives on the line. I think it's okay to say that. As a thought experiment, if we were to storm the Louvre or Hermitage again, what would we do with it? Anything? It's also possible that palaces simply don't lend themselves to democratic purposes. So, I mean, this is going into the essay that Nika Dubrovsky and David Graeber also published during the pandemic, which is called The Museum of Care, where they envisioned turning all the pointless office buildings into these places of care. Um, this notion of care, it, it's something recurring for them, and I guess something that I think should be talked about in, in art uh, in relation to the art world. However, I find a lot of what's been written about it not very intellectually stimulating, even though I think uh, care is, is an incredibly important concept. Perhaps there is more inspiration to be found in another revolutionary artistic institution, or better said, revolutionary artistic infrastructure, created in Russia in the beginning of the 20th century, which could be said to have entirely different implications than the Hermitage. Unlike Soviet museums, it only existed as a state-recognized institution for a few years, from 1917 to 1920, before being formally dismantled. Despite this, the infrastructure was so well-founded that it also, in a certain sense, survives to this day. It was the brainchild of Alexander Bogdanov, an immensely popular revolutionary who, despite being expelled from the Communist Party well before 1917, was briefly given free reign to enact this vision of art communism. Proletkult. 
<laughs> so they're going to talk about the prolet cult again. And they're using it really as a case study of what everyone as an artist uh, put into action might mean. And what, what's interesting is that they're arguing that the heritage of the prolet cult, which was brief, because... The, the prolet cult, you know, it was that classic situation where it it sprung from communist thought, the idea that everyone is an artist, that, that art should be shared, uh, that it should not be this exclusive thing. And then it was stifled by the communists. The, the first uh, part of this essay talks about that a little bit. So it, you know, there was classic infighting. It got kind of dismantled by the communists, but they argue that it actually has an influence on Russia and how it deals with art to this day. It's interesting. I, I interviewed a Russian artist on my podcast. I don't think it's a, it's not a very popular episode because he had a really hard time speaking English Russians because of the regime I think that they have. They just don't learn English very much. Um and so and I just so admire the heck out of anyone who is willing to go on a podcast and and speak in a in a language uh that they are so uncertain in. Um I really admire that as someone who lives now in a country where I have to speak a foreign language every day. Um I really admire that. His name was Daniel Posajenikov. You can find it among the episodes of Artists on the Verge. And it's true that like when he described the opportunities that he had, he and his little ensemble that he created had, it's actually quite remarkable. Like they, they do support what I think of, what I would think of as indie art. And it's interesting that I was able to kind of, you know, interview him and kind of capture that world. There's, there seems to be like a good kind of network of local scenes, local festivals that do care about bringing even fairly out there, you know, experimental, not very accessible stuff to small communities. Um, he even, uh, you know, Daniel Posajenyakov even talked about how they they incorporated a chorus of old women from the from the city, the little town that they were that they were um, doing a performance in. They really try to bring the community, and so it's really, I mean. It, it's interesting, you know, because he said, and, and he, he said, you know, when I go to the West, everyone is so surprised by how much we get to do over here. And what he perceives in the, in, in Europe, for example, he did, he hasn't gone outside of Europe, but he has been to Europe is that a lot of money gets thrown at these like festivals, like, you know, new music festivals, and then no one comes to them. And there's like no kind of contact with the community. And it seems like that's being done a little bit better in Russia. So it's just an interesting thing because it's it's weird to for me, from my perspective, to think of Russia as as, as a place where, where art would be able to thrive. But it, it might be that Mika Dubrovsky would argue, oh, that's that's actually the, the, the kind of the effects of the proletkult tradition. It would be interesting to talk to her about whether she thinks that was the case. So, Proletkult aimed quite explicitly to realize Novalis's dream that everyone should be an artist. Novalis was the early Romantic thinker who has been men uh, mentioned in the last two parts of this essay. It aimed to dismantle the infrastructure for the creation of heroic, monumental figures to allow for direct, unmediated relations between producers and to redirect social investment towards what had previously been dismissed as amateurs essentially reversing the values claiming that art should be anything like a job. Part of the aim, too, was to reimagine the very notion of, quote, museum and, quote, archive non-hierarchically. I don't know uh, what they mean by uh, reimagining uh, the museum and the archive non-hierarchically. Um, what, what Nika Dubrovsky did say is that they actually kind of tried to create some kind of proto-Wikipedia before the internet, this idea that people could all write 
the dictionary, basically, and pool their knowledge. There has been a kind of rediscovery of Proletkult in artistic, activist, and academic circles of late. This is perhaps unsurprising, considering that what Bogdanov and his allies were trying to accomplish on the artistic level is remarkably similar to the attempt to create alternative institutions currently being put forward by opponents of the police state. It may be surprising that it took so long. After all, revolutionaries have been arguing for over a century now about the Soviet grassroots popular assemblies and the experiments in worker self-management that flourished around the same time, and their ultimate suppression by the, quote, Soviet regime. Proletkult was in its origin simply the cultural manifestation of the same democratic movement. They're basically talking about, like, there was a flourishing at the very beginning after the communist revolution in Russia. They say that there was a sort of flourishing and all these interesting social experiments were made, the Proletkult being one of them. You know, but then the Soviet regime crushed all of it. It was also more massive in its scale, the Proletkult, than the organization of popular assemblies and self-management industries and more lasting in its effects. To give a sense of its size, in 1920, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union had roughly 150,000 members. Proletkult had 400,000 and was growing when the CPSU was actually shrinking during the period of civil war. During the period of 1917 to 1920, when the movement was self-organized, artistic production concentrated above all on theater, since theater brought together visual art, design, poetry, and music effectively all branches of art in a single collective product. And participation was so widespread that even a relatively small city might have uh, dozens of different theatrical collectives operating at a given time. There was also, critically, an active educational component to the movement, which attempted to collapse the boundaries between academia, popular education, science, and the arts. That's That, I think, is really interesting, this, this idea that there's these artificial boundaries between different sectors, like science and art, for example. And by that, I don't want to say that, you know, science and arts would have uh, anything in common, except that people who do science can, can benefit from taking on creator or artistic mindsets, and people who do arts can benefit from taking on kind of scientific mindsets. Long before the creation of Wikipedia, Bogdanov and his comrades also imagined and began to build a new infrastructure for the reproduction of knowledge, one that aimed to destroy the traditional hierarchies between students and teachers and supplant them with horizontal networks in which anyone could find themselves in every role in a different situation. Readers became writers, spectators became artists, producers, consumers, and so on. For Bogdanov, at least, the realization of a world where everyone could become an artist was communism. This destruction of hierarchies was precisely the end that the revolution aimed to achieve. Um, this is also something Nika Dubrovsky uh, said very clearly when I interviewed her uh, for this podcast, that this idea of, of art communism is just this idea that everyone is an artist. The participatory nature of the project clashed directly with both the hierarchy of arts as it existed at the time and the new Bolshevik project of creating an efficient police state. Yeah, so basically the Bolsheviks, they wanted to consolidate power, which is kind of antithetical to the whole, the, th the theory of the po communist project. In fact, Lenin's reaction to Proletkult lays bare the connection between the two, the connection between the police state and, I guess, the Bolsheviks. In 1920, Lenin imposed state control over the project, 
the, the Proletkult project, insisting that the proletariat had a right to be, quote, enriched by the highest forms of what he called, quote, classical culture, the reimposition of the values of the hermitage and of museums in general corresponded exactly to the transfer of power to the secret police. Large statues of Lenin were to begin going up slightly later. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting historically if it's true that basically, but I mean, it makes total sense that, that basically when the police state started, that is when the, the communist revolution gradually turned into a police state, uh, that's also when the proletkult got crushed. And where this this reimposition of classical aesthetic values and this idea of exclusivity of art was reimposed. Popular theater and education did continue, but under the control of Lunacharsky's Ministry of Culture, it was either censored or reduced to propaganda. Yeah, so I mean, we associate like communist art with propaganda and with censorship. Um, and they're claiming that there was this very brief, 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 brief time <laughs> at the beginning when things were looking okay. And when they actually did achieve some kind of collective creativity. As avant-garde art was removed from existing museums, and many of the artists were shot, in almost every city of the Soviet Union, a World Heritage Museum, a local version of the Hermitage, sprang up, and alongside it a museum of contemporary Soviet art and deeply conservative educational system designed to produce a body of technically proficient cultural specialists, whether socialist realist painters or ballerinas. I mean, Russian ballerinas are some of the best. One might say that the creation of bottom-up social welfare and cultural institutions and their gradual replacement by police functions, which took almost a century to accomplish elsewhere, took place over the course of about three years in the Soviet Union. That's pretty amazing. There is still a great deal of debate over the long-term significance of proletkult. What's really striking today is how proletkult, despite its focus on art, offers remarkable parallels with some of the proposals for the creation of a new infrastructure to replace our current police state. Remember here that police originally referred to the imposition of policy, of centralized initiatives. Think of all those declarations of war on crime, drugs, terror, and so forth. The emphasis on proletkult was the direct inverse. So now it's just a list. One, artistic priorities were not imposed by any center, but responded to the specific needs of people, education, health, equality, poverty, and existing networks. Uh, the second bullet point, all artistic institutions were to be local, decentralized, human-controlled. What other than humans could, con I guess they mean bureaucracies, because that would make sense today with AI, but I'm not sure what they mean by it back then, created by and existing for real people as they actually exist, not some utopian ideal of how they should exist, aha, in a specific neighborhood of the city, or even a specific street, and capable of being changed by them. Localism was combined with internationalism through immediate horizontal networks of artistic solidarity around the world. There was no talk of creating a national culture, but rather an art of the oppressed or a proletarian culture. And this idea of local, that you're local and that you're controlled by the local population and that the idea is to address actual issues of the people there and, and how they exist and not how they should exist because that's what, what they're trying to distinguish that from is socialist realism, which was basically trying to depi depict people as they should exist. They were trying to depict the utopia. You know, of course, there's there's lots of people talking about decentralization on the Internet, you know, with Web3. 
I just interviewed um, a Web3 researcher who's also a composer, and he was pretty pessimistic about uh, the web for art. Um, but I think there the issue is, first of all, uh, the, the issue that it's, that it's um, fundamentally, a lot of Web3 is fundamentally made as a marketplace where it's about profit. And secondly, I, I think the fact that it's online and that it's basically a global marketplace as opposed to really responding to local communities is the huge problem, which is uh, the, a problem kind of inherent to the internet on some level. So anyway, those are some of the values of the proletkult. Remarkably, much of this is still in place in Russia. While proletkult as a self-organized movement ceased to exist after Lenin had Bogdanov removed and placed the institutions under the control of the party's central committee, the infrastructure itself was not disbanded. Even now, 30 years after the destruction and privatization following Perestroika in all Eastern Bloc countries in the 1990s, almost every small town in Russia and much of the former Eastern Bloc still has a so-called house of culture, where anyone can spend their free time on anything from go clubs to drawing and singing lessons, from puppet theater to painting classes. So I don't know about that. In Czech, the Czech Republic, it's usually Germany is said to have these such places, actually. But this idea that there are after-school, publicly funded after-school arts programs, that is a thing. The professionalization of the arts and reimposition of hierarchies simply meant that the network of houses of culture were reduced to amateur status, with participants expected to act as unpaid propagandists for the party, creating theatrical productions celebrating increased productivity, for example. The teachers at the House of Culture were paid, though not, not as much, and their symbolic capital was minimal, enough for them to attract little attention which allowed the remains of Proletkult to become a primary enclave for Soviet dissidents, or simply those seeking alternatives to official culture. Yoga, for example, was formally forbidden in the USSR. I just, the, the USSR, man, they're just, they, <laughs> they forbid yoga. <laughs> Underground yoga teachers might work there, even if they were p being paid to teach something else. A place equidistant from both fame and influence, the houses of culture were also about as far as one could get from police control. Meanwhile, professional institutions like universities, artist unions, academies, and so on became gateways to privilege, feeding trows, they're referring to animal farm, I think, for an elite with access to exclusive hospitals and re resorts. Unsurprisingly, recruitment soon came to be based less on talent and certainly creativity than on conformity and connections. As a result, a huge number of real Soviet intellectuals actually emerged from the remains of Proletkult, from chess players to poets to Pavel Filonov's artistic pupils to mathematicians like Grigory Perelman, originally a participant in the mathematics circle at the Leningrad Palace of Pioneers. Like well-written computer code or beautiful urban planning, Proletkult turned out to be so tightly soon into the social body that it is almost impossible to unravel it. Uh, that was all in italics. So they're, they're just uh, expanding their claim that the Proletkult is actually still somehow, that it provided almost like a, a kind of hummus on which a lot of Russian art and, and also invention and science uh, was able to subside even after it was suppressed. We write this at a moment when many expect governments to soon begin pouring money into the arts, perhaps as part of a Green New Deal, 
similar to what the Roosevelt administration did as part of the original New Deal in the 1930s. This may or may not happen, but if the money is directed through the existing infrastructure of the art world, it will surely reproduce a similar professionalized elite. What if we were to redirect these funds elsewhere, along with the billion dollars the New York City Council shifted from the NYPD and the hundreds of millions of dollars circulating in offshore and private investments and art world coffers? Yeah, what if? I love imagining that. It's not going to happen, though. <laughs> what if we were to create a house of culture in every district, every street, along with a palace of children, a palace of pensioners, a palace of refugees, but according the original self-organized plan? What if we didn't judge what anyone did with the resources and simply provided the means for everyone wishing to participate in cultural activities to sustain themselves and find others interested in the same projects? To gossip, insult each other, apologize, sell indulgences, or create a water park or miniature golf course out of former monuments? What if we didn't organize biennials with tiered admissions, but monthly carnivals with costumes and dances in every district and every city as we see erupting seemingly spontaneously in any occupation from Zuccotti Park to Seattle, from Christiania, I've never heard of that, to Rojava, except this time without all the cops. It's a great vision. Yes, let's do carnivals. Let's have houses of culture everywhere. Let's give people money to make art without telling them how to make it. Great. Who's we? Where are we going to get the money? Where are we going to get the power? The problem is that, like, the imagination of someone who has only ever lived under a state and who has only ever kind of lived in a, in a fully industrialized society, imagining a world that is truly free and in which we all have these, you know, these monthly carnivals and everyone can be an artist and... And uh, we don't fund cops, we fund houses of culture. I mean, that's all well and good, but how are we going to accomplish that? It's nice to imagine that we might accomplish it. How? And the answer is there is no how. There's, Or rather, the, the how is like these smaller incremental changes, maybe. These are just opening salvos. Indeed, this is just opening a conversation. That's why I keep saying that this is the beginning of a conversation. It's an academic conversation starter. These are just opening salvos. In this essay, we want to suggest that what is usually presented as a decline in social welfare spending and subsequent greater reliance on the police is actually a clash between two entirely different concepts of social welfare. Okay, interesting. On the one hand, there is what might be termed the police model of social welfare, which uses the threat of violence to maintain a regime of artificial scarcity, it also carefully regulates and ameliorates its worst effects to maintain social order. At one time, this threat of violence was largely organized around disciplining labor, but today it has shifted to becoming itself the principal means of the extraction of profits, which are increasingly derived from rents. Capitalism sustaining itself not so much by selling us cars as distributing parking tickets and traffic tickets, but the forms of the sacred appropriate to the police order remain the same, public monuments, museums, and the art world. So that is the, the side of, of order, of the state, of hierarchy, hegemony, that's all that stuff. On the other hand, there are the self-organized forms, a kind of anarchy, of social welfare that are effectively extensions of communal care, conviviality, or the expectation of help from a neighbor in an emergency. 
Essentially, this is the form of communism that always exists in any community worthy of the name. Thing is, I think communities can only be a certain size. That's, that's the big problem here, I think. Essentially, this is the form of communism that always exists in any community worthy of the name, if only in our lack of desire to hurt each other and the fact that most pleasures aren't very pleasurable unless they're shared. This communal notion of social welfare invariably, as Kurdish activists point out, generates its own notion of security and self-defense. The question that remains unanswered is, what precisely are the forms of the sacred appropriate to the communal notion of social welfare? Okay, so they leave us with a question. What are the four, like if the forms of the sacred are the public monuments and the art world and the museums, which uphold the state and therefore the police, what are the forms of the sacred that uphold the communal notion of social welfare? We have no intention of ending with ringing declarations. Perhaps you are just offering a challenge to respond to this question. We can't help recalling that Alexander Bogdanov himself thought he had a solution. He was not only the founder of Proletkult, but of the Soviet Institute of Hematology, which was convinced that transfusing blood within communities could extend human life indefinitely. In this was the Russian cosmist belief that what is ultimately sacred is human life itself. The Earth, according to Nikolai Fyodorov, is a museum of humanity, with an emphasis on humanity more than museum. That is, putting the human, the individual human, the individual human's welfare at the center of all this, rather than the welfare of the state, the institution, or some kind of lauded artistic tradition. Everyone deserves the same care and attention that we direct towards monuments and masterpieces, and should for all eternity. So they try to end with this very humanist note, the human as the ultimate work of art, in a way. <laughs> so there you have it. The big problem I see with the conclusion of this essay is that Nika Dubrovsky's and David Graeber's vision of houses of culture and carnivals and, crucially, no high art world relies on large sums of money being redirected into this project. Sound familiar? They're basically advocating for a communist takeover, but you know, we're going to do it right this time, and the new Proletkult won't be crushed by a communist regime. The problem lies in, who is we? And who is to say we are better than all the other revolutionaries who thought they were creating a utopia, but instead ushered in repressive regimes with centralized power? And how will we deal with all the inevitable opposition we would face to co-opting all these resources for an arts and crafts carnival project. One of David Graeber's famous quotes is, the war against the imagination is the only one the capitalists have actually managed to win. So I'm sure the authors would accuse me of lacking imagination by only being able to see a bloody revolution come out of their proposal. But I could just as well accuse them of lacking imagination when all they're able to propose is redirecting funds through yet another revolutionary takeover. So the question I'm left with is, can we do better than this? Is there another truly imaginative and truly humanist way of building another art world? And I'm really thankful to David Graeber and Nika Dubrovsky for leaving me with these important questions, which is why I think their essay is still worth engaging with. I also want to say that David Graeber died in September 2020, before this last installment of the essay could be published. 
And maybe that accounts for the somewhat abrupt ending of this essay. David Graeber's death is one of those things that just makes no sense. And I really admire Nika Dubrovsky, the co-author of this essay, and also David Graeber's widow, for her grace in bearing this personal loss in the midst of also carrying on his legacy. I suppose one way we all can carry on David Graeber's legacy is precisely by continuing the conversation he had so enriched. If you've made it all the way to the end, you must be a fan. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and get in touch and tell me what you got out of this essay. Here's to being on the verge. Thank you.